0: Scripture for us this morning is from Genesis 44, a text many of you will be familiar with. And then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As morning... As soon as morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not that this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and the brothers said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do ask once again for your blessing here upon this word, that we might understand and fulfill it more faithfully this day, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. If you would, grab your Bibles, and if you turn to Genesis 44, the text that I just began reading there for us a little bit. Thanks. If you were uh, here last week or if you're familiar with the text, you know that uh, there's a great famine in the land, a great famine throughout all of the land and the people are starving uh, except for Egypt. Egypt happens to have food and so all the people are flocking to Egypt in order to gain the very sustenance that they need in order to live, and sure enough, Jacob and his family are starving as well, so Jacob sends his 10 remaining sons, his 11 remaining sons, down to Egypt so that they might buy food, and when they get there, lo and behold, the surprise is that there's a massive feast held for them at the high official's Palace. Now they don't know that this is Joseph, of course, their brother that 20 years earlier they had sold into slavery. And so they're caught off guard by the lavish blessings that are given to them. And then we begin in chapter 44, we know or we hear that Joseph is pulling a fast one. He's giving a bit of a trick here on the brothers by sticking his favorite cup. So he has this chalice, this particular silver chalice that he sticks in the youngest son's sack. That is in Benjamin's sack. So his younger brother, Benjamin, he hides this cup within the sack of that younger brother. Incidentally... We're not told why that he does this. I think that if you follow along the narrative, you can figure it out in weeks to come. We will explore some of that. That's less important for us today about why Joseph kind of deceives his brothers here or sets them up uh, for tragedy. Instead, we want to look specifically at the brothers' response. So when the steward, Joseph's steward, shows up and says, hey, you stole from my master. Why did you do that? They, The brothers, understandably... Look confused, and they say, no, why would we do such a thing? Beginning in verse 8 and going on, the brothers say, Behold, the money that we have found in the mouths of our sack we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. We're ready to buy food, they say. We're paying for this. Why would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also shall be your Lord's servants. The steward said, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. They say, look, if any of us stole this thing, go ahead and kill that brother, and the rest of us will become your slaves. And the steward says, no, no, that's over the top here. Whoever stole it will become my slave, and all the rest of you can just go free then. Verse 10, uh, verse 11, then each man, each one of the brothers, quickly lowered his sack through the ground, and each man opened his sack. And the steward searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore, Benjamin's the youngest brother then. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Now, remember, the steward said, you can go. I'm just taking the one who stole this thing, Benjamin. I'm taking him back, but the rest of you can go. But no, all the people turn, all the brothers turned and returned to the city. Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. We've met Judah before. Judah is one of the brothers, and he is slowly rising to prominence. Uh, We know that Judah doesn't have everything going on right here, uh, but he's slowly becoming more and more important, more and more central to the storyline. So he kind of takes the lead here in dealing with Joseph, with Pharaoh's official. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judas said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are your Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. So Judah here says, Look, what can we say? Obviously this happened. Uh, Benjamin was found with a cup. Not only will he be your servant, but all of us will be your servants. So again, Judah is expressing a willingness for all the people to pay for Benjamin's uh, fault here, Benjamin's guilt. But Joseph said in verse 17, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. As for you, you go up in peace to your father. So Joseph says, No, no, I'm going to punish this one. The rest of you go ahead and go back. Uh, to your father Jacob. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. Judah says, look, let me say something to you here. And then he proceeds through the rest of the chapter to kind of say, look, this is what happened. This is... Benjamin is our father's favorite child. I I had to beg Dad. I had to beg Joseph in order to get Benjamin to come with us because you said you wouldn't sell us food unless he came. Now I can't go back without him. There's no way we can go back. My father would just fall apart if if Benjamin isn't present with us when we go back. And so then in verse 33, Judah says, Now therefore... Please let your servant, please let me. Jo- Judah says, I will remain instead of the boy as your servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Lord God, bless this word, bless our understanding and our, our reflection upon it. For we need that blessing. Amen. I don't get out much. Uh, I try not to get out much. I'm not often in stores. Uh, I'm very blessed that Kel uh, likes going to stores. She can take care of all that. So I never have to go into the stores. So it was just the other, it was earlier in this week actually, that I saw my first uh, Halloween decorations in stores. Uh, I, maybe they've been out for a long period of time, but I saw my first ones here this week, and I was a little surprised to see Halloween decorations. They brought me back to, of course, uh, some of my own experiences with Halloween in the neighborhood where we used to grow, where we used to live, where our kids grew up, when they were very young, uh, the same size as many of the kids here in our sanctuary together. Today, we little kids, uh, we went uh, to Halloween uh, trick-or-treating. There was this one house that really did it up. They did... Uh, you know, all the scary things, the spooky stuff, and they lined the walkway up to their porch with these uh, real-life uh, ghosts and goblins and all these, you know, all these figures that were there. And you had to, as kids, you had to walk through the ghosts and everything, uh, the skeletons, in order to get to the door to knock and then to trick-or-treat and stuff like that. So one year, and of course, we've always been marveling at this house, who in the world spends that kind of time. Now, if you do, that's great, but whatever. Uh, how does this happen? So I'm walking with, with my kids, and they're, like I said, they're about the same age as some of the young ones here, uh, and I'm walking with the kids up the, up the, the walkway to get to the porch, uh, and one of the, the scarecrows Uh, is a real person. Of course, nobody knows this. He's standing really still. And as we're walking up to the porch, he then kind of comes alive and lurches towards you. I scream, let go of the kids, and run back to the driveway. And they're standing there, and, you know, Jason, trick-or-treat, you know, kind of things. But it was terrifying for me because, of course, dead things are supposed to stay dead, they're not, you know, I was just convinced this was just like everything else. This was just a, a mannequin or something like that. And when it was an actual person, and this guy played it out perfectly. And so then what I did is I stayed there the rest of the night and just watched him. Uh, he was terrifying. Every time he did it, I screamed. It was terrible. Uh, but it was, it was one of these things where dead things are supposed to stay dead, which is a great image for us and for what it means to become a Christian. Uh, This is an image that the Scriptures pick up so consistently, which is why I think the, the picture works so well for us in Scripture, that the idea is that God makes the dead come alive. Now, we can explore that in terms of what it means that we are sinners and what sin does to us, and we can look at all of those things in so many ways that we will, but one of the great ways of capturing that image, that the dead actually become alive, that that's what it means to become a Christian. So, uh, yes, we reorient our, our allegiance. Our allegiance at one point was oriented towards something in this world, either myself or or the people around me, or some earthly thing. That's where my my heart was bent towards. But then, in becoming a believer, a follower of the Lord, my heart is now turned and, and reshaped and molded so that it is now oriented towards God. My thinking, at one point muddled and confused by sin, is now oriented and shaped and molded so that it is more like God. My beliefs, what I think is important, goes from one thing to the next. All that happens when we become believers. But one of the classic pictures that the scripture puts forward is that there is a transformation, a shaping, a molding that begins to take place in every Christian's heart as they move from this life of deadness into a life of being alive. Ezekiel puts it this way. It's a wonderful passage. In Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel writes these words, I will give, now he's speaking as God, he's he's recording God's word, so God speaks these words. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now this is God's picture of the transformation that is supposed to take place, that does take place in every Christian. Now here's the thing. I want you to listen carefully, reflect again on that verse. God does not say, now that you're a follower of me, I want you to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That's not what the text says. The text is explicit that this is God's work in our lives, that God takes the heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh. Now, let's clarify something here for us. This is obviously a metaphor. Uh, non believers that live in this world, if we open them up, we're not going to find a heart of stone, actually, that kind of thing. Okay, it's a metaphor. But don't misunderstand this. The reality is not less than the metaphor, the reality is more than the metaphor. The metaphor is trying to reach the picture, trying to capture for us the image of what God really and truly does. He takes that which is dead and makes us alive. He takes that heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. In other words, he takes what is cold, what is lifeless, what is hard, what is impervious, and what is incapable of doing anything, and he turns that into a heart that is vibrant, a heart that is active, a heart that is alive, a heart that moves and yearns. And all ghosts and goblins notwithstanding, only our Lord can do that. And again, the promise of Ezekiel that is picked up in so many different places is that this process, it's called the process of sanctification, where that heart of stone is slowly and surely molded and shaped into a heart of flesh, that that process happens, is happening, for each and every Christian in this room. Now we can see this somewhat in the story of Joseph's brothers. It has been 20 years since they sold Joseph into slavery. And that's recorded in Genesis 37. So to some extent, what we're going to do is we're going to be paralleling what the brothers, how the brothers acted 20 years ago in chapter 37 with how the brothers act now in chapter 44, 20 years later. In the intervening chapters, what we have seen is God's work in Joseph's life. We have seen how Joseph, the one who was sold into slavery, is slowly shaped and molded so that he might represent the Savior himself, so that he might reflect the Savior, Jesus Christ, and what Christ does for us. But we also see, in this chapter in particular, you begin to see the work that God has done in the brothers' lives as well. God, over the past 20 years, has slowly, yet surely, been shaping the brothers. Now, don't misunderstand this, because in these chapters and in the following chapters, the brothers continually make mistakes. And so do we. But the reality is that this shaping, this molding is ongoing and continues to happen. Let's see how it takes place a little bit here in the brothers' lives. So now they have gone to uh, Pharaoh's table, sorry, to Joseph's table. Joseph has celebrated them, they're riding high, they get all the food that they need, they're on their way home to bless their father with all of this food. Suddenly the steward shows up and says, hey, you stole from, from Pharaoh, you stole from my Lord, and they say, no, we didn't do such a thing. Sure enough, you look, and it's in Benjamin's sack. Now remember Benjamin. Benjamin is dad's favorite. Benjamin is the one that dad says I can't live without. Benjamin is the one that now has gotten all the attention now that Joseph is gone. Remember Joseph was originally the one who got all dad's attention and consequently because of that the brothers conspired against him and sold him into slavery and told their dad that he was dead and faked his death and did all these terrible things. That's what the brothers that's how the brothers treated the favorite one. And sure enough then Benjamin starts acting like the favorite one. And Jacob starts treating Benjamin like the favorite one. And Benjamin is the one that gets all dad's attention. And then when they get to Egypt, this pharaoh's high official, he's treating Benjamin like Benjamin's the favorite. Why? Benjamin's getting all this attention. And it's got to be reflected in our minds that what's happening in chapter 44 is just like what's happening in chapter 37. Chapter 37, the brothers are like, this favorite son, let's get rid of him. And now, suddenly as they open up the sacks and they find that cup in Benjamin's sack and the, the Pharaoh's official had said, look, I will take just the one who stole this and turn them into a slave. The rest of you can go free. And, and, and 30 year, 20 years ago, the brothers would have said, this is great. We've gotten rid of the favorite again. We've gotten rid of this guy that's so annoying. And now we can just go back to dad and say, look, dad, what could we do? He took your favorite son from you. But that's not what they do. Take a look, for instance, in verse 13. In verse 13, then when they find the cup in Benjamin's sack, then they tore, then the brothers tore their clothes. Now, you have to be a real close Bible reader in order to catch this, so I don't expect many of you did. But in chapter 37, when they sell Joseph off into slavery, and they take the, remember the bloody robe? They had that robe that was bloody, and they take it to Dad and say, Look, Dad, a wild animal must have tore, him, tore this guy to, to pieces. Dad, Jacob, tears his clothes and mourns. And all the brothers stand around and smile. They've effectively gotten rid of Joseph, that brat. And they're all happy with themselves. Joseph, Jacob tears his robes. He's distraught over the loss of his son. But nobody else is. Twenty years later, the same exact event takes place. They have a chance to get rid of the favorite son. And instead, it's not just dad that mourns, but all the brothers mourn. They tear their clothing, and rather than go home to Jacob, they turn around and they go back with their brother into the land of slavery. What we see here is in those 20 years, their hearts have become softened by the work of God. Because that's exactly what it means for Christ to take those stony hearts that we have and soften them for each and every one of us. We develop a heart of compassion. You develop a heart of, of, of sorrow for a sin. You develop, develop a heart of, of yearning for the other person. That happens with Christians. If you know it or not, It's part of that sanctification process that God is working in our lives to mold and to soften your heart so that you might be more like Jesus. You can tell if that's happening in your heart. Let me ask you something. When you see other people's sin or when you're the victim of other people's sin, do you get more mad or do you get sad? It's an easy thing to ask. Do you get sad when you see other people sin? Is it a yearning, a compassion, a sorrow for them? Uh, do you want to tear your clothes because of the mourning that you feel because of the sorrow that is affecting the other person because of their sin? Or do you get mad at them? Do you sit there and say, how terrible is this person? I can't believe they do that. The heart of flesh is a heart that is compassionate, that is soft, that is kind to those who are suffering, not just suffering because they're victims of sin. I think we all can do that. You see somebody who has been abused by sin or something like that, and of course all of us yearn for that person, and we all want to be compassionate towards that person. But what about the person who is a victimizer what about a person who acts against somebody else? What a person who acts against you? Are you more mad? Or do you have that compassion that comes with a soft heart? The brothers here experience and express a heart of compassion. And not only that, but in verse 16 then, Judas says, when confronted by Pharaoh, okay, now uh, Joseph says, how dare you steal my cup? Judah doesn't know how that cup got into Benjamin's sack. Maybe he thinks Benjamin really did steal it. Maybe he just doesn't know. But listen to what he says in verse 16. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? And what shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. God has found out the guilt of your servants. A heart that is soft towards the Lord is a heart that experiences the conviction of sin. Think about what's happened here. Judah, he didn't steal the cup. He doesn't know how it got into, into Benjamin's sack, but he knows this, as he has become closer and closer to the Lord, as God has worked in his life, in his heart, he has become more and more sensitive to his own sin. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is something in in, uh, John 14 uh, and 16. We're told that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction into this world. That is, that when we become believers, one of the things that he does is convict us of our sin. He, He challenges us. The Spirit doesn't make, by the way, doesn't try to make us feel bad about ourselves. Rather, he challenges us with our sin so that we can do what? Not so that we can run away and hide, but so that we can turn to our Savior and confess. Notice that's what Judah does here. Judah turns to the Savior representative here, Joseph, uh, Pharaoh's great official, who will ultimately save God's people. He turns to him and he confesses his sin. For every believer... That's what a soft heart begins to look like. As God is shaping you more and more in his image, sanctification takes place. One of the signs of that in your life is that you will more freely recognize and acknowledge your sin before the Lord. Is that happening in your life? Here's a great way of checking. Ask yourself this. When you catch yourself in sin does it drive you to confess it to Jesus or does it drive you to hide? Do you seek to hide your sin or do you seek to immediately come to the Lord in confession? A soft heart is convicted by sin and turns to the Lord in confession. Additionally, then, in verse 18, we see Judah now who is once again experiencing the softening work of the Lord, when, the, when Judah then turns and says to the Pharaoh's servant, who is actually Joseph, we know, Joseph in disguise, in disguise, Judah went up to Joseph and said, "Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in your ear. Let you, uh, not your anger burn against your servant. What Judah does here is he, he's received the denunciation. The Pharaoh's servant, jo- Joseph has said, listen, I'm keeping Benjamin, the rest of you can go home. But this guy, he's staying here. What does Judah do in light of that? Instead of, now what did they do with, remember, Judah is the one, incidentally, that said to his brothers back in chapter 37, hey, let's not kill Joseph, let's sell him into slavery. Let's make some money off of this guy. And instead of instigating the punishment The abuse of Joseph, 20 years later, Judah is the one that steps forward and pleads for Benjamin. Why? Because he is so overcome with a desire for his father's heart. And that's what a soft heart is. A soft heart is one that begins to feel and to see things and to look at the world exactly like God does. Incidentally, I don't know if you caught it, but in that last song that we sang right before I came up here, every one of you who sang that song said, Lord, make my heart like yours. That's the process of sanctification. God, give me the heart to see this world, not the way I see it, not not just the way that I can understand it, but let me understand the world the way you understand the world. Let me plead For the world, the way that you would want me to plead, the way that Christ Himself pleaded for Jerusalem, pleaded for His people. That's what a soft heart does. Does a soft heart acknowledge the sin? Was Judah frustrated with Benjamin that he had done this? Of course, He was. But ultimately, the heart of a believer is the heart that follows after Jesus Himself and senses and sees the world the way that Jesus sees the world. There's this overwhelming yearning that you can't escape. Finally, of course, what Judah does at the very end in verse 33 and 34. Now, therefore, please let me remain instead of the boy as your servant. I will be your slave, but let Benjamin go home. Why? Because I fear what would happen to my father if Benjamin doesn't come home. A heart that is soft to the Lord is a heart that sacrifices for the good of other people. And sacrifice is never sacrifice if it doesn't hurt. It's not a sacrifice for me to give you ten dollars. It's a huge sacrifice for me to give you $10,000. A heart that is soft is a heart that sacrifices itself. And of course, Judah here is ultimately the great-great-great-great-grandfather of King David, who ultimately is the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus himself. Jesus following in the very footsteps of Judah here sacrificing himself for other people. Can you honestly say that that marks out your life? Because sanctification, the promise of God, that work that we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, is that that's what God says he is doing in your life. If you know it or not, you are being convicted of your sin, if you know it or not, you are, your, your heart is being shaped and molded to see the way that God sees this world. If you know it or not, your heart is being shaped in such a way that you have compassion and kindness towards others. And if you know it or not, you are being shaped in such a way that you sacrifice yourself. And if there's people out here that say, yeah, that's me, I don't know who you are. Most of us are going to sit there and say, I don't have that heart of compassion. I can't see the world the way the Lord sees. I do get frustrated when I see sin. I don't feel sorrowful for it. And so what's left for me? Despair? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. The promise of God for each one of us. He who began a good work in you. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If you know it or not, God has done this great work in your life. He is bringing to completion in your life A soft heart, a heart that will be filled with compassion that you can't even begin to imagine now. A soft heart that will be yearning to see the world the way the Lord sees the world. A heart that is convicted of sin and a heart that is willing to sacrifice itself for others. That's your future. And God is working on it right now. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for blessing us with this promise of your scriptures, that we will be those men and women who are transformed, that our hearts will be shaped, that we will be made new. Lord, we are grateful for that. We thank you already for the work that you have done in Jesus Christ, and we look forward eagerly to the continual transformation of our hearts that you do through us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.